The Bible reading tonight is from Psalm 19, which you'll find on page 439 of the Pew Bibles, um, or on your phone conveniently. It starts, For the director of music, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the earth. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing to the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive me, forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and these, this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So, oh yeah, just measure the volume there. So, do we have any science buffs in the audience? Anyone? Anyone? It's one hand, two hands, three, four, great. Okay, I'm not alone. This is a good start. Um, well, for everyone else who isn't one of the self-proclaimed science buffs, the James Webb Telescope was launched into orbit on Christmas Day 2021. Now, this is the most advanced telescope that humanity has ever created. It is bringing us pictures of the universe that until now were too faint or too distant or too old for us to see. Now, a bunch of images have been captured and published by them, and in July last year, they released four of their first images. Now, I showed these images at youth last year, but I just loved them so much that I'm going to show them again here tonight. So here's the first image. What I want you to do is to take a piece of the night sky that is about the size of a grain of sand. In that grain of sand is that. Now, what you're seeing there aren't stars, each dot there is a galaxy. And it has taken 4.6 billion years for the light from those galaxies to reach us here on Earth. This is the second picture. This is the Southern Ring Nebula. This is a picture of a dying star. As this star slowly dies, there's an ever-growing cloud of gas gathering around it. Now, if you could travel at the speed of light, it would take you half a year to travel across it, and 2,000 years to travel to Earth from there. Here's the next picture. This is a picture of Stefan's Quintet. There are five galaxies there. It took me a while to, to find all five, but there's five there, I promise. These five galaxies are slowly orbiting each other, and within, I was going to say a short amount of time, but the next billion years, they will form a monstrous mega-galaxy as they combine. Finally, this is the Carina Nebula. Now, while the other nebula we looked at was a picture of a dying star, 
This is more like the nursery of stars. In this nebula is a whole bunch of brand new stars being created, most of them far bigger than our own sun. Now, when we see images such as these, we realize how big and beautiful our universe is and how much is going on, way more than we can even comprehend what is going on. However, we've not needed super advanced telescopes to figure this out. All it has ever taken to figure this out is to look up at night. Now, that's exactly what King David of Israel did. In approximately 1000 BC, he went outside and he looked up. Now, in the Middle East, to the naked eye, you can see about 8,000 stars. And what he did when he saw those stars was that he was so moved by observing them that he declared the splendor of God's handiwork. He then looked down and he sang praises for the fact that the same way that the sun enlightened him on the earth, God's word, God's law enlightened his heart. Psalm 19 is the song that he wrote in response to all of this. And tonight we're going to explore it. But first, let me pray for God's help in understanding this psalm. Lord Jesus, as we approach your word, I pray that it will be you teaching here tonight. Allow us to understand you and your Father better. Amen. Now, the psalm divides nicely into three sections. The first is from verses 1 to 6, and it's all about how God is revealed through the skies. So, let me reread those first six verses for us tonight. For the director of music, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voices go out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Now, before we get too much into the details of this psalm, here's a fun fact with Lachlan. Did you know that in the original Hebrew language, 116 of the 150 psalms we have are a whole verse longer than they are in our English Bibles? Good, no one knew that. Good, fun facts. That is because that first line that we read in our psalms for the director of music, a psalm of David, is verse 1 in the Hebrew text. For us, we just have it before any of the verses. But this is important. This superscription is really helpful in understanding the context of the psalm. So what we discover here in Psalm 19 is that this was written to be sung. This is a song, and it was written by King David. Now, don't worry, I have no intention tonight to make you sing this psalm, even though that would probably be the most faithful way of applying this text, but we're not going to do it that way. So, turning to verse 1 of our English text, we set the tone of the psalm by seeing that the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, this word glory is meant to give us the sense of being weighty, of being heavy, or being important. That's what the word glory means. Now, Continuing on my physics bandwagon, which I've already started, in 2013, a team of astronomers detected a supermassive black hole that was 3 million kilometers in diameter. And they found that its outer edges were spinning close to the speed of light. 
There is nothing we know of in the galaxy, or in the universe rather, that is more dense or weighty than a black hole. A black hole of that size can literally disrupt entire galaxies. And yet something that has that much weight is still nothing compared to how weighty or glorious the God who made it is. We then turn to verse 2, and we see that creation during both the day and during the night speaks of this creator, speaks of this glorious creator. However, this is a bit of a paradox, because verse 3 says that they speak without speaking. This is because the created order tells, but it also doesn't tell. It speaks to our intuitions that there is a glorious God who created everything. However, its message is limited. It cannot tell us about this God. This is a concept that in theology is known as general revelation. Now, one theologian defines general revelation as the knowledge of God's existence, character, and moral law, which comes through creation to all humanity. General revelation comes through observing nature, through seeing God's directing influence in history, and through an inner sense of God's existence and his laws that is placed inside every person. Now, we actually see this concept of general revelation or God speaking to everyone come up several times in the Bible. Paul in Acts 14 says this, Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Now, Paul here is preaching to a bunch of Gentiles. They don't have the Jewish scriptures. And he is saying that the food they eat every day, the gladness that they experience in the normal everyday activities of life, are all a witness from God of his existence, of his wisdom, and of his goodness. Paul again in Romans 1 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Paul here teaches that the entire natural world bears witness to God through its beauty, complexity, design, and usefulness. Therefore, no one should complain that God has left insufficient evidence of God's existence and of his character. Now, the truth that we discover through general revelation is that God is showing himself every day to people all over this planet. And in Psalm 19, David says that one of the ways is through the wonders of the created world. Now, as we reach verse 4 of the psalm, the sun suddenly becomes the centre of our focus. Now, the sun, which to most of Israel's pagan neighbours was like the most important God, the most powerful God, here in the psalm, we see that the sun is magnificent, but it is obedient. God has assigned its place, has assigned its path, has assigned its role. And David says that it is like a human wedding when the groom, splendidly dressed, sets forth to the house of the bride to claim her. Now, having been recently married, I have but one question for you. Who is more splendidly dressed? (laughs) This is not a hard one. It is clearly the bride that is more splendidly dressed, which I think shows how different ancient weddings are to modern weddings. Because I am convinced that if this psalm was written today... Instead, it would say how radiant the bride is as she walks down the aisle. Now, on a wedding day, we all pause to take note of the bride. If you're watching a celebrity wedding, the commentators might also pause to note who made the dress. 
do we pause to recognize the one responsible for the beauty in creation? Now, many of us over the last few weeks have left Sydney and seen much of this state or country. At any point, did you pause to recognize the one responsible for it all? Here's my challenge. As you drive home tonight, thank God for the beauty of the night sky. Thank him for the air you breathe. Thank him for the dinner that you will eat. Simply recognize him in everything. As creation declares the glory of God, tonight I ask you to recognize that. We then move to the second section of the psalm, which is from verses 7 to 11. And we've already seen that God generally reveals himself to the world, but we can only know him personally through his specific communication to us, which he does through the scriptures. So let me read these verses again. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them is great reward. Now, in the first section of this psalm, God is referred to using the Hebrew word El, which is actually a really common name throughout the ancient world to refer to a supreme being. However, as we move into the second half of this psalm, David instead uses God's personal name. He calls him Yahweh. This was the name revealed specifically to Moses. It was the personal, intimate name given to Israel to recognize who their God was. Now, our English translations try to capture this by translating God in the first bit and translating Yahweh as the Lord in this second half of the psalm. So what we see in this psalm is that the heavens declare the glory of God, El, and the scriptures reveal the glory of the Lord, Yahweh. Now, it may come as no surprise to anyone in this room that I'm not a naturally poetic person. I read the history or the theology of scripture with joy and glee, and I tremble in terror before the poetry that I find in scripture. Now, this was a particular challenge when I studied Hebrew at Bible college, because Hebrew is a poetic language. In the entire way that it is crafted and shaped, it's doing more than just putting words on a page. And so even when it's recording something like history, it does it poetically, which means when you come to something like the Psalms, they are next-level poetry. So, in an effort to really stretch myself, I did a literary analysis of this part of the Psalms. And I found something that I thought was very interesting. So I'm going to share it with you all now. Let's start off by looking at the nouns. Okay. Obviously, each line here includes the word, the Lord, which is just the proper name for Yahweh. It's a proper noun, easy, done. But each line also starts with a synonym for God's law. That is law, statutes, testimony, precepts, commands, decrees, which could also be translated as ordinances or judgments. All of these refer to the Torah. So the Torah is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, also the first five books of our Bible. Now, these exact synonyms for God's law, for God's word, are also found in Psalm 119 in reference to the Torah. So David clearly reads these sections of the Bible and loves them. 
He reads through Genesis and Exodus with joy. He reads through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy with discernment. Now, we also have fear of the Lord in this list, and that doesn't refer to the Torah, but fear or reverence for the Lord, for Yahweh, should be our response to reading God's law. All right, next we highlight the adjectives. Now, God's law is perfect, is what it says here. That means that it is blameless. It has no faults whatsoever. God's testimony is trustworthy or sure, which means that it is verified. It has been confirmed as true. God's precepts are right. Now, this suggests a moral sense. That is, it is morally right. God's commands are radiant or pure. David in Psalm 12 defines purity as that which is like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. David also uses the exact same word for fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord also is pure, clean, or radiant. But notice that the final verse doesn't have an adjective. Instead, it uses another noun. So while God's law can be described as perfect, as trustworthy, as right, as radiant, or as pure, it is truth. David read the Torah, he read the first five books of the Bible, and he declared that it was truth. Today we have more in our Bibles than David did, but we too declare that everything in here is truth. Everything in here equals truth. Hey, right, finally, we're going to highlight the verbs. Great. So God's law revives our soul. It teaches us. The word simple that you see up on screen just means that you are ignorant. So God's law solves our ignorance. It brings us joy. It makes us see the world around us clearer. It will endure forever. And it is altogether righteous. Now, have you started to notice a pattern? Maybe it would be clearer if I put up the original Hebrew text. And so hopefully that will appear on the screen in a second. There we are. Now, Hebrew is read from right to left, but I've just noticed that clearly when I put it into PowerPoint, it flipped its way around to the way that works for us. And so what you see on screen is not proper Hebrew, it should be the other way around. But in Hebrew, it goes noun, noun, adjective, verb, noun. This is just a repeating pattern that happens over and over for this section of the psalm. Remember what I said about Hebrew being very poetic? You see, David has set up a structure and he's followed it perfectly. We know what to expect from each following line. We've read noun, noun, adjective, verb, noun, so now we know what to expect as we read the next line. Until we hit that final line, which shocks us out of our comfortability with the structure and makes us consider that line more deeply than we considered it before. It's like in music. If you look at your page and you see what key signature you are in, you feel confident you know what the structure is going to be. Until suddenly you encounter a random sharp or a random flat which ruins the purity of the key signature. Now, if you're new to music, you may look through the piece of music first to find where those sharps and flats occur so it doesn't catch you off guard. That is what is happening as we approach this bit of the text. We're in a comfortable structure until suddenly it changes. And what that change is meant to do for us is to shock us into considering that line more deeply. And so this is what we're meant to consider, that the judgments of the Lord are truth. 
and they are altogether righteous. Do you believe this about God's word? Do you believe that every bit of God's word is truth? Do you believe that every single bit of God's word is righteous and good? David certainly believed it about the Torah, and Christianity has always taught the same thing about the entirety of the Bible. And what would it look like if we did believe this about God's word? Well, the next verse in the psalm answers that for us. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Would you prefer access to your Bible over hordes of gold? For those of you who have semi-recently moved out of home, would you prefer access to your Bible over a home-cooked meal? Now, when I first started Bible college, I was keen to get through it as fast as humanly possible. I went to Bible college because I really love ministry. I love teaching, I love pastoring, I love evangelism. But the ironic thing is, when you start at Bible college, you have less time for all of those things. But my view towards college changed when at one chapel service, a lecturer preached on Psalm 19. And I realized that I'd been treating ministry as the source of purpose instead of God. And because of this mixed up view, I'd been missing the privilege that it was to spend time studying God's word. Now, don't get me wrong, teaching, pastoring, evangelism, all really, really great things, but they are not the primary goal. Knowing God is the primary goal. And while we can see God in creation, we can only know him through his word. So my question is, how will you, sitting here tonight, engage with the Bible more this year? I feel like it's still early enough to set a New Year's resolution. Figure out how you will engage with your Bible more this year. Maybe that means finding a good Bible reading plan. I know that the Young Adults Instagram page probably already has one up. Maybe you'll begin a group chat with your friends and every day you will send your daily thoughts about God's Word to that group chat. Organize with a friend or organize with the church staff to meet up weekly and read God's Word together. Maybe also you can find some helpful resources, whether that be a good commentary, a good podcast to help you understand the Bible that you are reading. If you aren't engaging with God's truth enough, this is your call to make a radical change to make sure you engage with it more this year. We then move to the final section of the psalm, verses 12 to 14. And here we find David's response to everything that is discovered about God through the skies and through the scriptures. Let me read those verses for us again. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now for David, this psalm, his examination of the skies and of the scripture, has prompted him to do a self-examination. And he prays a prayer of cleansing so that his life would be acceptable to God. He also asks forgiveness for all of those sins that have been committed in ignorance and for those sins that he has committed willfully. And he acknowledges that especially those sins that are committed willfully can have an enslaving effect upon his life. Interestingly, after he has just asked for forgiveness, he then declares not that God is his judge, but that God is his refuge to run to when he commits these sins. 
This leads us to the lesson that knowledge of God should lead us to want to live a better life, a life free from sin. And thankfully, we are in a better position than David because we have the great exemplar of Jesus, the one who actually lived this perfect desired life and died to ensure that forgiveness could always be offered to us. By trying to live as Jesus did, we act out this final bit of the psalm with the confidence and the assurance that God will forgive our hidden faults and that his Holy Spirit will help us and help deter us from willful sins. And the way we know about Jesus, the way that we know what he did and how much of an example he is, is again by reading about his life and deeds in the Bible. So in light of this psalm, instead of singing, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray using the Acts model of prayer, which is where I'll pray in adoration, praising God for who he is, in confession, leaving space for us to declare our sins to God, in thanksgiving, thanking God for giving us the skies and the scriptures, and in supplication, asking God to help us find him and know him better through his word this year. So please join me in this prayer. Dear Yahweh, we praise you for who you are, for the way that you are a God who speaks, who spoke the very universe into being and ultimately spoke to us through your son, Jesus. We struggle to even conceive of your power, your knowledge, your goodness, and your glory. Standing before you, we remember our sins. Please forgive us of all of our sins committed out of ignorance. We ask that your Holy Spirit may be active in keeping us from transgressions of this kind. We also ask forgiveness of those sins we commit willfully. We all here pause now during those specific sins that weigh on our minds before you now. Thank you that due to Jesus' actions, every single one of those sins is forgiven. Thank you that we run to you as our saviour and safe place. In reflection on Psalm 19 tonight, we thank you so much that you've created a good world for us to inhabit. Thank you for all the masterpieces you created for us to admire in the heavens above, for the way that you provide everything we need to live. We thank you also for the specific revelation you give us through your word, the Bible, the way you are revealed through it, and the invitation we find within it to have a relationship with you as our Heavenly Father. We ask that we may be diligent in finding you both in nature and in your word. We ask that you would help us put in place practices in our lives to help facilitate doing both of these well. Continue to reveal yourself to us, we pray. Amen.